0: Welcome to GOB with Christy and Kathy, where we talk about writing, reading, and life in between. I'm Christy
1: in South Florida. And I'm Kathy in South Dakota. We're two newbie writers who share our love of food, wine, and crime fiction. We have interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors on our Corks and Conversation episodes.
0: And don't forget our Words in Progress episodes where we have fun writing lessons with writing experts. Join us for today's episode. Welcome to Corks and Conversation with Ellie Marnie.
1: We are here with the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author Ellie Marnie, all the way from Australia. Got to love that Zoom, Kathy. Her, <laughs> her latest novel, The Killing Code, is a suspenseful historical mystery that features strong women front and center in an expertly plotted mind game of a thriller set during world war ii and wartime washington dc it involves women code breakers a vicious serial killer who is targeting government women and even fits in a little romance so i zipped right through this book kathy i thought it was great
0: yeah me too and it's got all all the things like you just said just all the great things look at that look at that cover too
1: nice cover you can
0: see if you look close you can see the like the numbers the the code yeah it's it's killing
1: codes in big red but behind it is like the ripped up paper with like codes yeah written yeah
0: so yes christy i can't wait to talk about this novel with her as well among other things so ellie welcome to the podcast
1: great to have you
2: hello kathy and hello christy it's really nice to be here
1: from so far away. <laughs> I know. You sound like you're just around the corner, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know. Before we got started, we were we got we got all excited and got started talking before we started recording and we were comparing all of our current environments in South Australia, South Florida and South Dakota. So, yes. more more, right. th- more to come on that.
1: Yes, and the big takeaway is that we're actually time travel talking cuz yeah. it's tomorrow in Australia tomorrow morning where it's six in the evening here in Florida and five in South Dakota. So
0: did you have any kangaroo interactions in our
2: future? You will always get kangaroo interactions if you're up my way, because I'm (laughs) like, I was saying before, I'm a couple of hours out of um, the main city and out in the country areas. And there's kangaroos everywhere (laughs) at the moment because (laughs) we've had a lot of rain. um, And so they, they proliferate during during the really good times um, when there's lots of grass. So they're literally everywhere. And I was just saying that um, <laughs> I was driving my kids to school and I'm teaching my son to drive. So he's driving. So I'm constantly saying to him, okay, you need to slow down because there's going to be kangaroos everywhere and you have to be careful. And you're always, you're never watching the road. You're always looking on either side of the road to see if they're going to jump from either oh side. Um, you you have to drive at them because they're <laughs> otherwise, if you try to drive around them, they will 100% be guaranteed to just jump in front of you. So the only way to avoid them is to just drive straight at them and then they will jump away. <laughs> so if you
1: hit one, I mean, that could be a lot of damage, kind of like hitting oh, a yeah. deer or something in the US. Absolutely.
2: Oh, you'll you'll ride off your car. Yeah, 100%. So they would be about as big and heavy as a deer. I think a full-grown kangaroo would most definitely, that would be mm-hmm. the end of your car, pretty much,
1: mm. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Now, do they, do they have kangaroo hunting season? I mean, God forbid to say that, but I mean, like, we have deer hunting to make yeah. sure that, you know, we're not...
2: Yeah, they do have um, kangaroo culling here because yeah, they just become like plague proportions, right. um, particularly in the farming areas. I know a lot of people who oh. who will um, yeah shoot some kangaroo, and yeah. also you know it's it's pretty good quality meat too as well. So mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who who will hunt for for kangaroo meat, but um, not so much around here. But in the in the bigger, open, more open spaces of Australia, you'll, you'll get people who hunt for wow, kangaroo. For sure.
0: Interesting. If you wow. want some kangaroo steak or kangaroo sausages.
1: <laughs> I have never had that. That's I have true. Either.
0: I've never even seen that as an option. I think mania, I have ever. seen
1: it in, as an option. Have you? Yeah. Now that you mentioned, I have seen it as an option. I
0: mean, that's the same. I mean, we, I live in a rural area and there are tons of deer and on the mm. Western side of our state, um, my, my, husband's family has a ranch and they have a huge problem with, um, well, not a problem. They're beautiful and they're wonderful, but, um, they have elk, just tons and tons oh. of elk. And so there, there is an elk hunting season to try to reduce the numbers. Cause you know, oh herds of elk will come through a ranch and you know, there's like 50 in a herd and they'll just take down fence line they'll and, just, you know, wipe it out. just yeah. wipe it out. And so what we often are offered lots of elk and deer meat from the ranch as
1: well I wonder if we could do that for like tourist season down here <laughs> oh. I, didn't I, was like, I am totally kidding <laughs> we would never do that <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh Okay. I think it's now time to segue into the
1: novel <laughs> let's let's ask some questions okay oh, let's
2: do that. Now that we've started talking about
0: homicide, yeah. Yeah, Yes, exactly.
1: That's what it was the lead in for the story, okay?
0: (laughs) Okay, so yeah, because now it's time to talk about serial killers. So that's excellent timing. It is The Killing Code. This is, how many novels have you written preceding this? Okay, so this is my 10th novel.
2: Um, And it's very strange because I'm considered a sophomore author with this book in the US. But uh, so it's only the second book that I've had published in the States. But yeah, I've been, I've been in the publishing business for quite a while now, nearly this. So this is my 10th year. Wow. So this is my 10th book, my 10th
1: year. Oh, well, so there you are. You're pretty prolific too. There you go.
2: Yeah. It's a, pretty wild, it's a pretty
0: wild ride. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let's just give everybody a little background on this particular novel. And I would love to talk about your other novels, too, because this is a historical. Mm-hmm. It is, and it has such an interesting and unique point of view. I just, I think that's why Christy and I both loved it so much. There are some uh, young women working for the government during World War II mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C., and that's a whole different world away from... Modern day, next day, Australia, where you're at. No kangaroos there. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm so curious, what made you write about Code Breakers during World War II in Washington, D.C.? Well,
2: this is a very long story, so I'm going to try and give you the Reader's Digest version. Um, (laughs) I have always uh, written a lot of historical crime, so the book that I released before, The Killing Code, Nun sleep is set in 1982, and I'm I'm kind of fascinated with how that changes crime investigation. I mean, I know that mm. you read, you both read a lot of crime, mm-hmm. um, and you know there's certain things that we kind of take for granted uh, in current criminal investigation, um, like being able to just send an email to um, a district attorney or a coroner or or contact people by phone you know, anywhere at any time. And, and also some really basic things like fingerprinting and DNA, you know, identification and all those sorts of things. So what happens to a criminal investigation when you strip away some of that stuff? Um, so 1943, the book is set and, you know, there's no DNA um identification of murderers. There's no way to fax a copy of some, you know, or whatever to another party to get corroboration. So I find all of that really, I find the mechanics of crime investigation when you take a lot of that convenient stuff away, I find it really Mm -hmm. interesting. But I also became completely obsessed with code breakers after watching um, a British show, and I don't know if they have it in the States. It was called The Bletchley Circle, and it was released, oh, I don't know, maybe 2017, 2016. So it's about young women who work at the code-breaking facility in the UK during World War Two, which was called Bletchley Park, okay. and it was in. It was an incredible. Hive mind <laughs> where they they started very early trying to break German codes like the Enigma code, and that's where we get all the stories about Alan Turing from you know the imitation game. And mm-hmm. look, I mean, it was an amazing place, it was an amazing facility, and there were thousands of women working there. Um, because 70% of the workforce was female, because quite a lot of you know, I mean, the men yeah, were, the men were at war fighting, yeah. So there were a lot of very clever women working in um, Bletchley Park. And the Bletchley Circle series was about how 10 years after the war, a number of them get together again to help solve a a crime, a, a murder that's occurred in their district. And it just completely fascinated me, the idea of these women c- collaborating on and using their old skills, you know, that they mm-hmm. that they weren't allowed to talk about because, um, because, you know, you had to sign the Official Secrets Act. You weren't allowed to talk about the work that you did during the war. So I thought, well, I mean, because I write for teenagers, my first thought is always, well, like this, but what if it was teenagers? <laughs> <laughs> what if it was teenage girls doing this? And then I dug into it a little more and I discovered that actually um, – the average age of the women who worked in code breaking uh, during World War Two was nineteen. Oh wow! So I thought, yeah. So I was like, oh, okay. So they were already teenagers. Quite a lot of them. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were straight out of school, or they were in the first year or two of teachers' college, or, you know,
1: was before they had they families were... and things like that. So yeah,
2: they were, and and so I thought um, I would dive into a little bit more. Um, We had code-breaking facilities here like that in Australia during World War II and I knew obviously about Bletchley Park but um, there's a number of books written about Bletchley Park so I was looking into what it was like for U.S. code-breakers and I picked up this amazing book. It's up here on my shelf actually by a woman called Liza Mundy. Uh, She wrote a book called Code Girls that was released in 2017 where she just, you know, it's this big thick book She's just dived right into what their lives were like and how they worked and the kind oh of work. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was
0: incredible. I mean, were so you, I mean, you were just thrilled to find that resource when this idea came? Oh, my God, yeah.
2: And then there was a line in the book that said, oh. And then in, you know, the summer of 1941, the army decided to buy this facility to, to house all the code breakers. And it was called Arlington Hall, and it was a former ladies' college. And I thought, that's it. That's that's my
1: entry to the story. Yeah, it worked perfect. (laughs) Yeah,
0: so (laughs) it was just luck. (laughs) You know, when you mentioned the limitations on historical law enforcement, the first thing I thought about was... There's a U.S. writer by the name of Sue Grafton. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Oh, she used to write wonderful mysteries, the alphabet mysteries, that were all set in like 1982 to 1986. And she didn't ever move past that because in interviews, she had said how much she enjoyed that limitation, that you you know had to drive to the police station to talk to somebody and you had to drive to talk to that private investigator. Um, and that I think that is a really cool perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: It's really fun when you put those constraints on the people who are investigating. And then obviously there's four girls in the killing code and they're all investigating these um, murders and they're trying to, you know, break the code pattern of a serial killer who's murdering government girls in Washington, D.C. So not only are they applying their skills, but they're also very constricted by what they can do. Like... They used to work seven days on and have one day off. And then, you know, they used to work in shifts. So they would, they were not always guaranteed to be on the same shift. And um, there was 24 hour rotation. So, you know, there were things that they couldn't say in public. They couldn't talk about with other people So I was sort of thinking it would be really interesting to put all of these constraints, additional constraints on the people who are investigating, as well as the fact that they were women in the 40s, early 40s, which was significant disadvantage right there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so have you been to like DC or that area or?
2: No, (laughs) you're going to, I was going to say, you'll be like, oh my God, how did
0: she write that? That's called research, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think some of the benefit might be because it is set in the past. So there's not a whole lot of people that are going to be around going, well, hey, that wasn't exactly like that, because it was far enough back that, you know, Mm -hmm. you get a little bit of artistic license.
2: (laughs) You get a lot of artistic license with Arlington Hall, in addition to the fact that all the landmarks have changed from DC mm-hmm. in 43. Um, Arlington Hall is still owned by the NSA, so no one can go in there. <laughs> oh, wow. So, in fact, it was really quite hard to find information about it, even online. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, a you know, there's a lot of restrictions still on what you can look at now. There were some very old photos of, you know, and some internal plans of what the grounds and the mansion of Arlington Hall used to be like back in the forties when, before it became, uh, an army base basically. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, I, I kind of have been a bit sneaky. (laughs) I <laughs> setting it in a place where no one's going to fact check yeah. me unless they work for the NSA and they go and visit Arlington. And then Hall. they probably
0: can't say anything anyway. Yeah, so. they can't say yeah, anything right. anyway. Right? That's a pretty safe amount of historical <laughs> research, actually. I know. Because yeah. we've talked to a lot of historical writers who comment about how Often, you know, if they get something wrong, audience members will pick up on it and they will oh, yeah. let them know. And so <laughs> kudos for finding something people can't really respond on. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I've had people say
2: that to me. Oh, I know that street corner I I grew up around there or they've, you know, commented in reviews. So yeah, it definitely happens. People will grab you
0: and <laughs> let you know. <laughs> Yeah, they'll let you know. Okay, so listen, we're about midway. Let's take um, our question on the bottle, Christy. This is a question, a random question. Christy always has a plethora of them behind her. And it's a question you might get to
1: at the bottom of a bottle,
0: which we have done many times together.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let's see what the question is today. All right. The question is, if you had to start one new hobby, what would it be? A pretty sedate one
2: if I had to start a new hobby what would it be oh I have just decided to start a new hobby actually oh really? yeah <laughs> yeah because now that my children are grown up I have I have four boys
1: um, oh my goodness <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> um,
1: Fun. So that's been a very
2: busy life <laughs> yeah But my oldest boy has entered high school now and he's kind of okay to fend for himself. And my two oldest boys are 20 and 22. So they're living down in the city, working and studying now. So I think it might be time for me to actually do something for myself, which would be really nice. Yeah. Um, What a concept. (laughs) I know, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I was thinking I might start sewing. (laughs) I'm going really? to doing clothes. Yes. I know. Are you oh. going to sew
1: clothes for yourself or for other people? Yeah.
2: yeah. I don't think, I, I don't think any of my sons would appreciate if I sewed clothes again, <laughs> um, but I will definitely try and um going to try oh. out some simple patterns and try out some clothes. What's
1: your first one on the list? What kind of piece of clothing? What kind
2: of thing? Uh, Just like a plain shirt. That okay. I want to buy some nice fabric and stuff like that yeah. because um, because nice clothes are really
0: expensive. So- they, are. Yeah. I, they are. That intimidates me. I can't even sew a button on well. I'm embarrassed to say. I mean, I can sew. I can get the button on. But I, what I'm really bad at is that final knot. Isn't uh. that terrible? Yeah.
2: I totally understand. I grew up. My mother used to do some sewing when I was a kid, and you know, I always roundly rejected all of the clothes that she slaved Mm -hmm. over, sure, of Of course, she was making them for me. And then I was scared to use the sewing machine for a really long time because she had an accident one day where she actually (gasps) sewed through the nail of her finger into her finger. Oh, yeah, I know. So I was like, oh, okay, that's put me off using a sewing machine pretty much forever. (laughs) Um, but now I think you know I'm old enough. I'm grown up enough now, and I've recovered over, from my trauma. And I think I might I might give
1: it a shot. Face your fears. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm very impressed by that because I'm intimidated by that. That sounds really hard to me. I'm I'm going to start small. I'll probably start with like
1: handkerchiefs and then
0: work my way up. <laughs> yeah how about you christy any new hobbies
1: i do not have any planned but if i had to yeah. say today i think i would um and i've thought about this before and dabbled but i would like to learn how to play guitar
2: ah oh, that would be awesome
1: yeah you yeah. can take it everywhere you know I could. Can, i can't really sing but i could play
0: oh that's really cool too
1: yeah that is
0: pretty cool actually i do i love that all,
1: all right i'm gonna do it do okay.
0: it i know <laughs> let's check back in with the two of you next year christy can
1: okay, play a song okay <laughs> <laughs> now, sure I'll, be, shit. I'll be <laughs> strumming some some chords while you're sh- wearing your shirt and what is, what is kathy doing for her hobby
2: yeah what are you gonna do
1: oh um I will
0: tell you, the first thing that popped in my mind was I was recently on vacation um, on a beach, and there was a guy who was um, would take you out sailing on a small sailboat, and I've always wanted to learn to sail. Always, oh, like a little yeah. individual, like one or two person, like, mm-hmm. you know, hobby craft kind of sailboat. And um, my neighbor growing up used to, a good friend of my dad's, always would go out to the lakes and sail on his own, just... And I just mm-hmm. thought that seemed so lovely mm-hmm. and I would love to learn to sail. So that's, that's that all is right. Next year. Yeah. I've got, um,
2: <laughs> I've got a friend, Amy Kaufman. She's an author of science fiction and fantasy and she grew up sailing and yeah, so she's totally into it and yeah, it sounds kind of complicated to me, but, yeah. um, I think
0: it could become one of those things that you get really into that you get really addicted by. Yeah, yeah, I would. I would love that. I my husband um, was a pilot growing up. That's what his family did as a hobby. Wow. They owned a plane and they would fly all over the place. Wow! And, and he's wanting to get back into flying, and so we were talking about the irony of that when we were on vacation. I was like, "Well, I'm going to go sail," and he's like, "Well, I'm going to go fly." I was like, "Cool. <laughs> we'll see you in a few hours." <laughs> yeah. So you need
1: to you need to move to on a lake with a little runway a, nearby. A right? Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: It's fun to think about the things that we can pick up and can learn and and that it makes me want to do it even more now so
1: yeah so let's go on with some questions because I wanted to ask you about the hashtag love Oz YA book club that you (laughs) co-run and um and I know that you mostly write YA thriller so I'm just kind Mm of um wondering how you got involved in all that and Mm -hmm. And why? Um, Well, in about 2015,
2: a whole bunch of YA authors and some uh, booksellers and things like that, we all got together and realized that we really needed to start, you know, encouraging local teenagers to read books that were local to them, because we were getting a lot of input from teenagers saying that they were reading stuff from overseas, but there's some really amazing YA authors in Australia who seem to punch pretty hot, well above their weight, you know, on the world stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so we sort of thought, well, it'd be really good if we could start advocating for that a little bit more and encouraging Australian young people to read their local literature. So we set up um hashtag LoveOSYA as a way of advocating and promoting. And I set up the book club just on a whim, really. I was like, okay, well, I could encourage people to just read one YA book a month. Um, it wouldn't be a huge investment of their time and, you know, it might be a bit of fun. So now it's it's like nearly eight years or something later and oh, we've wow. got like Nearly a thousand people in the book club on Facebook. I mean, not everyone's wow. participating every month. Yeah, I know. Now do um, you make
1: uh do you make your kid, your sons be part of it? <laughs> <laughs> no, they would they
2: would not. Um <laughs> yeah. they wow. would kill me. No, that I let them choose their own They'd kill me. <laughs> they have their I let them choose their own path as far mm. as books and reading go. They are actually all really into reading.
1: Mm-hmm. Um
2: and they're, they've even started reading some of my early manuscripts before. Sometimes I'll say, oh, okay, is this working? And then I'll give them the manuscript. Wow. And, yeah. And then they can give me some feedback on it, which is really cool. Yes, um, cool. for sure. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think for the Love Osweye book club, it was just a way of highlighting the local books as well that ha- are coming out. And also there's an old, there's a lot of old historical novels here by people like Ruth Park and Brian Caswell um, and, you know, the, um, Victor Kelleher. I mean, you guys may not have heard of these authors, but they're kind of part of the history of Australian literature and YA mm-hmm. literature here. So we're kind of trying to
1: raise a bit of awareness about that and have a bit of fun with it. Yeah. Kathy and I are both writers too, and the novel that I'm actually editing right now is YA yeah. And it's also a crime fiction or whatever. But, you know, that was part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you. And also, when, it, when we were reading this, I mean, both Kathy and I are like, well, I don't know. This could not, you know, how do we know that this is YA? Because okay. it honestly, I feel like, you know, yeah. and I often feel that way about a lot of YA okay. books. But this is definitely one that I feel like could be just marketed as an adult that's a mystery. regular book,
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that too. I think, um, I think you have to be a little inventive with the teenage characters because, like, like I was saying before, I think they're a bit more constrained. You know, the first time mm-hmm. I wrote a YA crime novel, it was my first book, Every Breath, and I, I had to think really hard about how to how to bring teenagers into an active role in an adult world. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some ways, I think it's easier writing historical because teenagers were already kind of acting like adults in 1943. You know, a lot of them were working outside the home. They had jobs. They married very young. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of them were off at war. So it didn't feel like there was as much of a partition between teenagers and adults in the same mm-hmm. way that there seems to be today.
0: Yeah. It, in this book, you know, I was thinking, oh, four teenage girls, like you say, 19-year-old girls. But these, these women are they're full adult yeah. women and teenage girls at the same time. And if I was to describe four 19-year-old girls now, today, I, mm. I wouldn't have assigned the level of maturity that was needed and expected of these young women. Mm-hmm. And so um, I do like the historical aspect of that because it does allow you to look at I don't know, kind of force us to, yeah, just identify different issues and how we're handling it. You know, trying to protect kids, I guess, from being exposed to ideas. God forbid, we don't want anybody to read about right. anything that makes... Well, the thing I love about book banning, the only thing I'm going to say about it is I love that people think books are so freaking powerful that they <laughs> better ban them. I'm like, great. Yeah. And I had read once um, Judy Bloom was like, please ban my book. All it does is make it sell more. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I just, I do love that there is that much power in reading. And if people are scared of it and they're so scared that they want to take it away, I'm like, well, it means it's still that I powerful. Agree. So there mm, yeah. we go. That's the yeah. only good thing I can have to say about it.
2: <laughs> they've, they've always, there's always been that power there. And that's why, you know, people consistently trying to ban information, um, mm-hmm. in times of unrest or you mm-hmm. know, during war. I mean, one of the things that I was investigating a lot, well, there were two, two sort of main areas that I had trouble finding information about when I was researching the, the book. And one of them was the black code-breaking community. I found it really difficult to find information about um, black female code-breakers. And part of that was, well, a lot of people just didn't think it was important enough to write down you know, I mean, I, I'm sure that there's more documents out there. There's got to be more letters from, from you know, the women who participated or people who were working with the unit. I mean, all we know is that uh, William Coffey was a janitor at Arlington Hall and liaise between black staff and the code-breaking unit. And when they realised that they were just becoming so inundated with code-breaking work that they needed more people, to do the work, and also when Eleanor Roosevelt, who in 1944 made a rule about uh, desegregating military jobs, you know she Ooh. was she was integral towards, you know, for FDR to make that decision and to to make that legislation. Then suddenly they had to hire a certain number of black staff, and so this this man William Coffee became the de facto leader of the black staff who were now doing the code breaking on the commercial codes you know they were they were looking at trade communications because you know the war was on but trade was mm-hmm. still happening Um mm-hmm. so they that became their area Um and we know a few of the names of the women who worked there people like geneva arthur but there was so much happening at that time in civil rights you know the march on washington was threatened in 1941 and there was just there was there was a lot of sit down protests around lunch counters and segregation on buses and things like that. So there was heaps happening and I it was I I would have to say there's gotta be more information out there about black codebreakers. I'd love to find out more about it. I dug and dug and I probably only uncovered maybe three or four articles max about it. So that suppression of information or just the neglect.
0: And so you know. The lack of, you know, yeah. acknowledgement. Lack mm-hmm. of
2: acknowledgement.
0: Somebody knows it, but you, you worry about people aging out of, of the ability to do those interviews, yeah. you know, at this, at this point. 100%. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Oh They're gosh. just getting
2: a bit too old. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have passed away. So, yeah, it's, it's already quite hard to get some of that information down. Um, and a lot of them still won't speak about it. You know, that was the right. other thing. When they signed the act, the Secrets Act, they they took that very seriously. You know, they didn't expect to be rewarded. There was no expectation mm-hmm. of recognition from the work that they did. And so they were happy to keep that secret, the people who worked in crude breaking. Um, and a lot of these women just, even when those regulations were relaxed, they just had gotten so used to not talking about it that they just it was something mm-hmm. that they didn't yeah. discuss. Um, and queer women as well working mm-hmm. in... The military and working in code-breaking oh. abilities. I get asked all the time, on oh, why did you write a Sapphic romance into this book?" And it was like, "Well, I don't know. You've got thousands of women all living yeah. and working on like the same gonna laugh. premises. <laughs> Of course, it's going to happen. <laughs> Definitely going to happen. You know, yeah. even if it wasn't, um, it wasn't really discussed. But it was, mm-hmm. it was uh, kind of a unacknowledged secret." that Mm -hmm. um you know they used to use all these all these euphemisms for women who are in who are in same-sex relationships and they would say oh you know she's uh she is her longtime companion that was the
0: that was the code (laughs) that's what makes the story so fascinating there's just so many layers these aren't just you know that it just it's such a and it's such a different perspective that we don't see often enough about wartime stuff so yeah
1: okay christy has a final question which of your characters would you like to share a meal with and what would it be that's really And you can't say kangaroo no i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) um
2: well you know that would be that would be a surprising meal choice (laughs) um You know, you can eat, you can eat crocodile meat and kangaroo meat here in Australia. Yeah. And, and it's kind of, yeah, nobody really. We, we see,
1: we have alligator here in South Florida. That, oh, yeah. That's what freaks that's everybody true. out from here, you know? Well,
2: yeah. Do you eat alligator? In, I mean, mm-hmm. can you eat it? Really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, wow. It's good. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, it's so not that I
1: different have... than a crocodile for sure.
2: <laughs> this is true. This is true. actually. Um, <laughs> okay okay well I'm not going to choose kangaroo or crocodile for the meal (laughs) um who would I who would I converse with I would probably and this is going to freak people out but in my debut US book Nuncha Sleep uh there's a teenage sociopath who is one of the one of the lead characters his name is Simon Goodmanson and he's he's kind of like a YA Hannibal Lecter I guess Oh. oh um hey everybody he's very i'm gonna have uh, to read this book for sure (laughs) please please um i think i think if you like the killing code you'd probably have a good time with that one Mm -hmm. um so he is incarcerated um and i'd like him to stay incarcerated and i think we could take a little card table or something into the jail and (laughs) um have a conversation just because he's a really fascinating character to write he's super smart he's He's very attractive and charming and highly manipulative, and I would kind of like to just see him in action, I guess. Oh I would like to pick well, his you're brain. Not, he's
1: not so much like Hannibal Lecter, like you aren't going to be eating human parts or anything, are you? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, we wouldn't do that. We would have okay. a very,
2: some, some really nice wine and, mm-hmm. you know, some really nice um, French cuisine, I think, Okay, for oh. Simon. Very nice. <laughs> I think he would enjoy that very much after the deprivations of being in jail. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. The whole jail thing. <laughs> okay. All right. So Ellie, when our um, us listeners want to find out more about you and your previous novels, where should they go?
2: Um, okay. So they can go to my website, um, which is, you know, Um And, you know, I, all my books are on Goodreads. Um, I'm also on Twitter, which hmm. is kind of, Uh, dropping off a little bit now but um, I guess I had a lot of fun on Twitter but now I'm kind of transferring my attentions to Instagram and TikTok so I'm at early money author on TikTok Um, so yeah I look I'm on everything that's what you've got to do these days to yeah uh, you know that you're you've got to be on all the platforms you've got to be
0: on all the things, gonna
1: be out there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I, I enjoy a little TikTok. So I will check you out on on TikTok because yeah. I really <laughs> enjoy <you>.
2: TikTok. <laughs> I'm actually quite having having quite a lot of fun with TikTok. Are you? Are you? Are you? Yeah. I used to be. I so I was thinking of, of
1: trying it, but yeah. um maybe maybe in our off season I'll have more time. Yeah. Huh? That's what we're thinking. We're thinking <laughs> we gotta get there.
2: It is actually really good fun. Um, the yeah. it, it's something about it. It's the spontaneity of it and the. Um, silliness of it, you know, whereas Instagram is very beautiful. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas TikTok is a bit more warts and all. And I kind of like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Well, we'll have to check it out. So it's just been a great, great conversation, lots of fun. And we're so we're so glad you could join us from down under. I'm so glad to be
2: here. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Yeah. Hello from tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait. It looks beautiful. So let's, let's give a cheers to the killing code and, um, cheers <laughs> to you. you. Cheers to you.
0: <laughs> Thanks for joining us for today's episode.
1: Subscribe to our podcast on our website, gameofbookspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you liked what you heard, you can give us a five-star rating or review.
0: You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can watch
1: and listen. On gameofbookspodcast.com, you can find all the information about what we talked about on this episode, and you can sign up for our newsletter and enter our fun contests and giveaways.
0: We also post our stories and links on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hope to see you there. I can guarantee you that we had fun today. And we hope you did too.
2: Cheers.